Good morning. We are certainly glad to be in the house of the Lord to worship God together. We're thankful for the presence of everyone here this morning. We're glad that we have the opportunity to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage one another as we worship and glorify our Father in heaven, as we've been able to remember our Lord and Savior and His death and the sacrifice that He made for each and every one of us. We have been in the midst of a series this year. Our annual theme has been on the gospel. The gospel is for all. And we have tried to define what the gospel is. Because many times when we hear the term gospel, you might think about the first four books of the New Testament that we refer to as the Gospels. We think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we might then begin to think about the Gospel as the life of Jesus that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John present to us. And that certainly is a part of the Gospel. And we need to think, when we hear of the Gospel, we need to think about Jesus. That's certainly a a right thing to do. And as we have tried to study what the gospel is, we have looked at moments in the life of Jesus. We have looked at how the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus, how in the promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that it was actually pointing to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. We looked at Isaiah the prophet and many of the prophecies that Isaiah made about the coming King, the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, and how He fulfills those prophecies. And then we began to look at Jesus Himself. We began to look at His birth. We began to look at His ministry and preaching. We looked at His temptations. And we have considered His death, His burial, and His resurrection. However, what I would tell us, or at least caution us, if we think, that that is where the gospel stops, then we are mistaken. The gospel continues on. And what we're going to look at here in the book of Romans is what I'm going to kind of title the gospel according to Paul. Because Paul begins to preach the gospel. And he is going to defend the gospel. And in the opening section of Romans... As he tells us here in chapter 1, in verse 16, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. That he is happy to defend what he believes to be the truth, the gospel as revealed by God to him concerning Jesus Christ. He considers himself an apostle called by God. We'll talk some more about that in a moment. And so the gospel is more than just something about Jesus. The gospel becomes a comprehensive term, a comprehensive idea that involves the redemptive plan of salvation that God has orchestrated since the beginning. And so I hope that you will study along with us this morning as we consider some things that we find here in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
What I find amazing about this is that Paul has defined what the gospel is. He has kind of set the parameters or at least some of the major themes that you find in the gospel. As you go earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter 1 and the very first verse, notice what Paul says. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So in who he is and his work as an apostle, he's saying, this is what I am called to do. I am called, I have been set apart for the gospel of God. Which, he says in verse 2, which God promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he says that the Gospel, it was prophesied beforehand in the Old Testament, and it is about Jesus, God's Son, who was born as a descendant of David, how He was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection. And what we see is that the Gospel is what God has accomplished through Jesus. That's what Paul believes. That's why he's not ashamed of it. Because he knows this is what God has accomplished through His Son. For Paul, that is the Gospel. So the Gospel is more than just a story or facts. The Gospel, what he says, is power. Doesn't he? In verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The word power is used throughout the New Testament in several different ways and different times. But most notably, or interestingly, in the Gospels, in the Gospels, what you see in the, that term power is used oftentimes in association with healing. That Jesus went about healing people. Healing the sick, the lame, the blind. And all of that is interesting because Jesus had the power to do that. He had the capability and the ability to do those miracles. And through the Gospel, God has the power and the ability to save us from our sins. The Gospel is the demonstration of God's power. We may think, how is God able to work through a message, through something that we hear, or something that we are told about? How can God work through that? I may not be able to un understand all of that, and how God is capable of working through a message of hope and a message of redemption, a message of salvation. But that is what the Scriptures teach. The Apostle Paul would write in the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is something that people would mock in the world. The idea that a king would go to a cross and die a humiliating death. And that through that, He is actually establishing His kingdom. 
that's very against the grain of what we would think as normative for a king establishing a kingdom. If we were to write that story, we would think of some great hero and how he comes in and how he conquers all of the enemies, wouldn't we? That's the kind of king we would think about. But it's the word of the cross, it's the gospel that is really how God saves us. And those who disbelieve the gospel, they believe the message of the cross and the gospel and the idea of a crucified Savior is just foolishness. And yet, if you continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, notice in verse 24, Paul says, But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That it is found in the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That that's where we come into and we see the power of God demonstrated. That Jesus, He died, but He was raised from the dead. When we come to believe in that, when we believe in the God who is able to save us from our sins, by the same power and by the same kind of action that God was able to raise Jesus from the dead, That is the power and the wisdom of the cross. And as you continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 31, Paul, as he concludes this part, he says, So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's saying his confidence and his boasting, it's not in himself. It is in the God who is capable of saving, who has power to demonstrate that. Thus Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Because it is in the Gospel that we see God's power. God is strong and mighty in the Gospel. The Gospel is not weak. The Word of God is not something to laugh at or mock or to think lowly of. You need to think highly of the Gospel and God's Word. Because it is the power of God for salvation. The idea of salvation, sometimes we toss that around pretty, pretty loosely, don't we? That I have been saved from my sins. And that's a, a wonderful thing, isn't it? We are so glad that we have been saved. We are thankful for the forgiveness that God has granted to us. But what does the word salvation really mean when we say that? The word salvation means deliverance, preservation. That when we say God has saved us from our sins, that He has delivered us from sin and from the danger of sin. He has preserved us. He has promised us eternal life. Our souls are saved by the Gospel of God and Jesus Christ and He preserves our life and promises us eternal life. The Gospel is good news about salvation. And we need to proclaim that 
We need to proclaim and we should not be ashamed of what the Gospel is able to provide us with. Secondly, we need to understand what Paul is also teaching us about the Gospel. The Gospel, according to Paul, emphasizes that everyone needs the Gospel. So not only is within the Gospel do we see God's power, we also come to learn that we need, everyone needs the Gospel. Notice in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. That the Gospel is available for everyone. Our theme this year is the Gospel is for all. Many times we have sung that hymn, The Gospel is for all. Because of that being our theme this year. Everyone needs salvation. You just have to look at Romans chapter 1 and you see it very clearly in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is going to be upon those who commit sin. He goes on to describe that in this chapter, as he describes uh, homosexuality, he says in verse 28, and he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, watch out kids, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You just have to turn on the TV, don't you? And see the news. And you see all those kinds of actions, don't you? That's the kind of world that we live in. We no wonder everyone needs the Gospel. He goes on and he says that even if you don't commit all those things, but if you give your approval to those people who do commit such acts, you're just as guilty. And so as you continue on in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 10, Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. In verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is the universal problem that has touched every nation, every tribe, every family, and every person. All have sinned. No one is righteous. Now some people say, well, yeah, no one's righteous and I was born that way. I can't help it. I think that's too simple of an explanation, just to be frank. I think that's too easy. Because it escapes any kind of accountability, doesn't it? That we choose to sin. We choose to violate God's commandments. 
And that's not always something that's pleasant to have to admit. But it's when we can humble ourselves and we can see that. That I have sinned. And whenever you can admit that, that you have sinned, then it can open your eyes for the need of the Gospel of God and His wonderful grace. And the Gospel is the solution. The Gospel is the solution. Paul says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And since the Gospel addresses the universal problem, it's universally available. And God has always intended for it to be such. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, we've alluded to this a little bit. In Genesis chapter 12, when God made the covenant with Abraham and where He promised him that He would give him a great nation and He would give him the land of Canaan. And He has said that through Abraham and through his seed, all nations of the earth might be blessed. In Genesis chapter 12, And in verse 2, He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Everyone needs that blessing. Everyone needs the salvation that God is so richly offering. And so much of what Paul does in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, throughout his letters in Ephesians, he talks about the need for Jews and Gentiles to recognize and to humble themselves and to quit disagreeing and come together through Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 3, And in verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about the revelation of the mystery that he has been given, the Gospel. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, he says that this mystery of Christ that he's been given insight is to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. That Gentiles have been welcomed in. They've been brought in. And he goes on in verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. Through the preaching of the Gospel, we need to recognize that the Gospel is what unites people. It doesn't place up barriers. It's what puts us together. It's what brings people who have all sinned and have all fallen short of God's glory. And the Gospel is what can bring healing and restoration and peace. And the preaching of the Gospel and all people of the earth being blessed and united into one family the family of God, the church. That is what connects us 
to God and His redemptive plan from Abraham until now. It's this Gospel. Everyone needs the Gospel. And we need to be willing to share that Gospel with others. We need to tell others about Jesus Christ and God's plan. A third thing that we see here in Romans chapter 1 is that the Gospel is about God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 1, and in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We'll stop there in our reading for just a moment. That within the Gospel, what we see is the revelation of God's righteousness. We see that the Gospel is about God and His righteousness or His faithfulness. That He is faithful to do what He says and what He has promised. That He has accomplished what He said He would concerning His Son. Notice in Romans chapter 1 and verse 2, that the Gospel of God is what He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So what we see here is that the Gospel, that it is God's promise about His Son. God has fulfilled those promises. When God says He's going to do something, He does it. He is faithful to do it. He is trustworthy and we can know with certainty that He will accomplish it. You know, sometimes when we talk about salvation or when we talk about the Gospel, sometimes we can really make it about us, can't we? We can say, that God saved me. And that's right. It's true, isn't it? Praise God. That God saved us. And we make it a story about us. That look at what I did. I obeyed the Gospel, right? But the Gospel, and while it is about us in one sense, it's also about God, isn't it? The Gospel is about God. It's about God's part in saving us from our sins. The Gospel is about God's righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And many times the righteousness of God is associated with His grace, His love, and the mercy that we see from Him and that He has poured out His abundant grace that saves us from our sins. But there's another sense in which God's righteousness is connected also to His vengeance, to His wrath, to His judgment. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. In Isaiah chapter 59, if you would be turning there. In Isaiah the 59th chapter, 
Isaiah chapter 59 and in verse 17, Isaiah is here going through and he is just indicting the children of Israel for their sin and for their injustice, for how they have separated themselves from God, all the sins and all the transgressions, all the iniquities, that they have turned away from God. And he comes to verse 17. And as Isaiah is now picturing and describing God, how God would react, how God responds when he sees sin and injustice and iniquity. And he says in verse 17, He, that is God, put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Here is God being pictured as a warrior, right? He's getting out. He's ready to go. He's ready to go and fight with vengeance. And you see how this starts? He put on righteousness like a breastplate. The righteousness of God is also a way for us to be able to talk about and perceive not only of God's grace and mercy, but also God's justice and vengeance and wrath. I've described it in this way that if you were to think of God's mercy over here and God's anger over here, how are you able to converse about the two? Well, you kind of need to build a bridge. And that bridge is called righteousness. Righteousness would be able to grant you access to mercy and grace and salvation, or it can also be a way to talk about God's anger and God's wrath. Because notice in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, then if you go to, down to verse 18, for the wrath of God. Well, whoa, that's like whiplash right there. Well, I thought we were talking about salvation. Now we're talking about God's wrath? How can within just two verses, Paul switch gears so suddenly? It's the, the righteousness of God. Righteousness is oftentimes the springboard for salvation, for grace and mercy and love, but it's also connected with God's justice and His vengeance. And that's why Paul goes on in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, where he warns how we will all be judged after he has come with this indictment in chapter 1 about all these grotesque sins. How people have turned away from righteousness and doing what is good and holy and proper. In chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge... Practice the same things. No one's qualified to be a judge, is what Paul's saying. So he says in verse 2, And we know that the judgment of God 
rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? No. God is the only fair and righteous and good judge. And He tells us how God judges. In verse 6, that the judgment of God will take place and be based upon our deeds. In verse 6, it says, who will render to each person according to his deeds, according to our actions. God is going to look at what we have done. He's going to look at what we have done and He's going to ask if we have done what is right or if we have done what is wrong. And He will reward those who do good to those who obey the truth. Notice verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. God judges them as recipients of eternal life whenever they seek to do what is good and right. But then notice verse 8. There's a contrast. But... But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, they're only going to face the wrath and the indignation of God. God is not partial in how He judges. He judges everyone the same exact way according to what you or I have done. In verse 16, in verse 16, Paul says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The gospel is how God is going to judge us. And notice Paul says, he calls it my gospel. Not that it's like his in ownership or in his creation, but the gospel that he's preaching. God is going to judge us according to the standard of His Word. According to the standard of His grace and mercy and His wrath. All of that that we find in the Gospel. And God is going to judge the secrets of men. Not even just the things that everyone knows about that you've done or that I have done. He's going to know the things that you think were held in secret. God is going to judge us for that. Now, if you had to face a judge, if you had to go before a judge and let's say you were guilty, and you knew you were guilty of some crime or violation of the, the law, would you want a judge who is partial and who's only going to see, well, does he have name recognition? Does he have money? Does she have influence? Does she have power or something? Is there some, something that he or she could give me? Is that the kind of judge you would like? 
Or would you like a judge who is going to look at, at you in fairness that if you were the poorest person in the world or the richest person in the world, would you ra- rather Him judge you both the same? That's the kind of judge I would want. Maybe you're both guilty, but you want a fair judge, don't you? You want a judge who's going to do the right thing. You want a judge who's going to be righteous and fair. Maybe a judge who's going to show you mercy. That's the kind of judge we have. God is a judge who will show mercy if we believe in Him. If we are faithful to Him. And that brings us to our last point this morning. The Gospel that God is going to judge us by. The very Gospel that He is going to judge us by and that He has revealed His righteousness within. It fosters faithfulness and obedience. Notice here in Romans 1 and verse 17, for in it, that's the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous live by faith. That's not just a momentary decision that happens at one time. Faith and living by faith. That's ongoing, isn't it? It's what should characterize our whole life. The word faith, I think, sometimes can be used in a very shallow way. That it, We think of it as just believing certain facts or certain knowledge of certain events or something like that. But the word faith really means faithfulness or trustworthiness. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 5, notice there's an interesting phrase here that Paul uses. In Romans 1 and verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. In chapter 6, in chapter 6 and in verse 16, notice here what Paul says in Romans, Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness or justification? You continue on in chapter 16. In chapter 16, that Paul closes out the book in just the same way that he opened the book, talking about the obedience of faith. He says, in verse 16 or verse 26 of chapter 16 but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal god has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith what we see is that when we hear the gospel it's supposed to promote and activate within us faithfulness where we want to be obedient where we want to do what god says And when we hear something, we want to do what is going to be pleasing to God. So that way we avoid God's wrath and condemnation and judgment. Obedience. I think 
has taken on a very negative idea and connotation, especially in the religious world, right? We want to people want to say you're all you have to do is believe and you're saved at the point of faith and faith alone. But notice when we have that kind of idea, we're saying obedience is somehow trying to earn your salvation or that it's just this really cold, ritualistic kind of thing. But the obedience that you find, in, at least in Paul, especially in the book of Romans, is not that at all. Notice in Romans 10. In Romans chapter 10 and in verses 9 and 10, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Notice what he says. When you're doing something, when you are obeying, when you are confessing Jesus as Lord and as Christ, when you're doing something, when you're obeying and when you submit yourself to Jesus as Lord and as King, when you demonstrate that you believe and that you're going to do what He says, that you're going to be faithful, that is not cold ritualistic obedience. That's obedience that comes from the heart motivated by love for God and His Word. The obedience of faith, that is describing the quality of our faith. Do you have a faith that is willing to obey? Do you have a faith that's willing to do whatever God says? Because that's the kind of faith that we need. And so when we think about the Gospel according to Paul, we are reminded that the Gospel is God's power for salvation and everyone needs to come into contact with that Gospel. They need to hear it. They need to believe it. They need to obey it. Because the Gospel is about God in many ways. It's about God's righteousness and it's going to be about the salvation that He offers, but it's also about the judgment that we will all face. And the Gospel should prepare us to be faithful. It should create within us a desire to do what is pleasing to God when we see that God is faithful, that when God does what He has told us He is going to do, when God offers grace and mercy and salvation, what should I do? I shouldn't turn it away dismissively or I shouldn't take it and just say, well, thank you and go on my merry way. I should gladly accept it and receive it and then live my life in a way that expresses that thanksgiving. A life of obedience and faithfulness. The Gospel of God and Jesus Christ is something that needs to be obeyed. And the Apostle Paul teaches us how to obey the Gospel. That is, we need to unite ourselves and join ourselves with and in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 6 and in verse 3, Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? 
Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Have you joined yourself with Christ in baptism? The water is ready. We're prepared to help each and every one that may want to give their life and their heart to Christ Jesus this morning. Maybe it is that you're here and you have already made that step. And you have already given your life to Christ, but you've not been living faithfully. You've turned back to sin. At the very beginning of Romans chapter 6, Paul deals with that kind of scenario. He asks the question, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. God forbid. Because once you become a Christian, a life of sin is supposed to be in our past. But if you have turned back into sin, if you've turned away from God, we're here to pray with you, pray for you, and help you and encourage you in whatever way we can. This morning, if you're subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?